with apologies to Andy Williams. It's not Christmas time. It's March. March is the most wonderful time of the year. You're listening to the Wildcat Sports Report Podcast. Okay, I can make an argument that maybe uh, September, when you've got the start of college football, the start of the NFL, the end of the baseball season, uh, that that is the most wonderful time of the year. But it's hard to beat March Madness. And if you're a pro wrestling geek like me, uh, WrestleMania season as well. But it's hard to beat March Madness in the NCAA tournament. And this year is especially fun when you've got the men's and women's team uh, yesterday, if you listened to it, broke down a little bit of the bracket for Arizona, uh, men and women, uh, the women being a little more daunting. We're going to do a deeper dive into some of their opponents uh, later in the week, uh, probably a Friday morning podcast. But for now, I want to kind of clear out the notebook, so to speak. A couple different topics here, talking mostly men's basketball. We'll talk a little women's basketball at the end. Did not podcast much last week. I'm not sure I even had one last week, and so some of this will make up for that. So we'll talk a little K.J. Lewis recruitment in a minute. But let's uh, really go start with the Pac-12 tournament. I was very impressed with Arizona Pac-12 tournament because they faced adversity over and over and over and, and overcame it. Uh, if you look at the Stanford game, that was one where they were never comfortable. And you have to remember, for the bulk of this team, I think all but two players, maybe three, uh, yes, assuming Pella Larson played in the uh, Pac-12 tournament last year, this is their first postseason NCAA experience at all. You know, Omar Ballo has obviously been in a couple in a couple West Coast Conference tournaments and obviously the NCAA tournament, but he didn't play much. Uh, Justin Kyer has been in uh, several uh, postseason tournaments, uh, but not an NCAA tournament. And obviously, Pella Larson, I believe, played last year in the uh, Pac-12 tournament. Arizona being ineligible, uh, self-imposed. None of those players who returned to the team had ever played in a postseason tournament in NCAA basketball. So being able to go and then take the best shot from Stanford, a team that, again, played Arizona very well in uh, McHale Center just about a week and a half before, I think was a big thing. They made the plays down the stretch. And that's something you're continuously seeing for this Arizona team. More often than not, they make plays down the stretch. The three games they lost, two of them were blowouts, or at least one-sided. Uh, so Arizona has never shied away from the moment. Uh, we've never seen a time where we've questioned, uh, I think, uh, Tommy Lloyd's coaching in the final few minutes of the game. Now, they haven't necessarily had to draw up many game winners yet, uh, but that bodes well for Arizona. There is a calmness, there's a confidence, there's a... Uh, for the most part, is seemingly knowing what to do in those moments. I look at the Oregon game, where even when things went wrong, you had uh, Kirk Creesa making the big shot. They were able to shrug off uh, his horrific turnover. Obviously, those are things that may come to haunt you against a team slightly better than Oregon. But overall, you have to like Arizona's poise down the stretch. They play better more often than not than their opponents down the stretch. When you look at the Colorado game, that was just a bizarre game. Colorado shot 25% from inside the arc, shot well over, what was it, 60 or 70% behind the arc, and Arizona actually kind of won going away down the stretch. Now, part of their strategy was to shut Colorado down inside 
And normally you expect a team, maybe if you defend a little lighter on the outside, maybe you can shoot 45 or 50 percent. They were over that. Uh, so that was a fluke. But, you know, at the end of the day, Arizona, it, it, wasn't, it was a multi-possession ball game at the end. Arizona got away with that strategy with the hot shooting uh, Colorado. And then you go to the UCLA game. You've got your injured Kirk Creasa. You've got Justin Kyer in foul trouble. And Arizona gets down big, and you're like, okay, it's not their night. That's understandable. You know, the officiating uh, didn't go. I think Arizona's way more often than not in the first half. Uh, I don't think it was that horrible, but yeah, a couple of those fouls on Kyer and even Larson in the first half. I mean, they played much of the first half without Larson with three fouls as well. We're ticky-tack. I thought they let Hawkins get away with some forearms, but at the end, I think it kind of started leveling itself out. Uh, but what we saw is we saw Arizona, again, able to go on one of those monster runs. They got punched in the mouth by UCLA, came back from it. They then punched UCLA in the mouth, and UCLA had no answer. So mentally, at least, I don't know about physically, but mentally, at least, Arizona was the tougher team that night. Uh, really, you had to be super impressed with Dallin Terry. Uh, Terry, who I think we've all fallen in love with quite a while ago. To me, what he did that game is now he he made the NBA scouts have two questions. Uh, we've all seen, you know, people I think agree that Dallin Terry looks like an NBA player. He hasn't put up monster numbers this year. But we also know the NBA doesn't really worry about numbers. Um, that's why some of Arizona's best scorers have, have been barely drafted in the second round. And other guys who were projects have, uh, you know, gone earlier. You know, you can look at the difference between even like a guy like Josh Green going earlier than Zeke Nanji or, you know, a Richard Jefferson going earlier than Gilbert Arenas. Uh, Andre Iguodala, who was not a tremendous college player, going very early because the NBA drafts on potential and ability. But to me, not only now do we say, can Dallin Terry be a pro player, but I think it becomes, what is he? Is Dallin Terry, as I assumed, a 3 and D guy in the modern NBA? That is a guy who, if he can improve his shot a little bit, shoot threes, defend the wing. And I think, to me, he's always looked like that kind of guy. In many ways, I've thought he's kind of reminded me in a weird way of like a poor man's, maybe not even a poor man's, maybe a better man's version of like a Trezor or a Reza. I think a Reza is a more gifted natural scorer, but a 3 and D guy, you know, which we see all over the league right now. Or is he a point guard? I mean, he had seven assists, zero turnovers. He's been, I think, the best guy or the second best guy uh, on the team in assist-to-turnover ratio. I know Kreisa uh, has been very good at times. So my question is, does he come back, maybe get the ball in his hands a little bit more than he already has, allowing Kreisa to play off the ball a little bit, and is Dallin Terry a future NBA point guard? I don't know. I think there's still a, a, a genuine uh, chance that he goes pro this year uh, because of his athleticism, because of his size, because of his defensive ability. But I also think there's a better chance he comes back and focuses on well, probably both of those skills, his three-point shooting and his ability to run an offense. And again, he could be a very valuable asset, especially to a good team uh, in the NBA. But you know, you could see him being you know, a guy on a, one of those championship-type teams where he can be the 3-and-D guy off the bench and be the backup point guard off the bench. Not entirely unlike a Devin Booker, uh, who has been able to assume the point guard role at times. And, you know, I think, I think Terry's a better defender than Booker. Certainly not the offensive player that Booker is. But again, in that mold of long, athletic two guards who can also do some point guard things. 
The biggest question I have is why is Tommy Lloyd not the shoe-in national coach of the year? If you take out the fact that he was hired on tax day, April 15th, if you take out the fact that he uh, inherited a team that was a bubble team, if you take out the fact that he, you know, is in his first year as a head coach at any level other than, like, high school, he took this team. They're, what, 31-3. and three. They're a one seed. You could make an argument they're the best overall uh, team in America right now. And that alone should get you a bunch of National Coach of the Year honors. But then to factor in the fact that he got a slightly late start, he lost two-thirds of his recruiting class. He lost a what a bunch of guys to transfer, including the starting point guard for a one seed, the best player on a mediocre Louisiana team, a contributing role player on Texas Tech, a contributing bench scorer at, I think, San Jose State. You know, they lost some talent. What's-his-face, uh, even though we knew Jamal Baker was going to leave, uh, he's playing really well at Fresno State. I mean, that's a lot of guys to lose, but he was able to retain the core of this team. And people are knocking him, though, because he didn't recruit all these guys. And I think that's silly, because what if, you know, they're talking about Ed Cooley, and Ed Cooley recruited a bunch of his guys. Well, if I have a senior-laden team, if I'm, you know, St. Mary's, and I recruited these guys three years ago, four years ago, two years ago, does that factor into my coaching this year? Because if it was a recruiting and coaching award, almost every year we go to Calipari. Calipari is the guy who does the best recruiting job with one and duns and then takes him deep in the tournament. I guess you could throw Coach K in there. You could throw, you know, a few other teams in there. But to me, it shouldn't be a knock that he didn't recruit these guys because, frankly, he had to re-recruit the entire starting lineup. He then had to recruit all three, really four if you want to go with Adama Ball, of the primary bench players. He had to convert Kirk Kreese, who only played a few games last season, into the starting point guard. He had to take uh, the vast improvement that we have seen in Dallin Terry. He's made Benedict Matherin a more consistent player. Christian Coloco's improvements have been crazy. Uh, Omar Ballo's improvements this year have been crazy. So I don't, you know, I know that people love the Ed Cooley thing, but I'm just, I don't get it. I don't think, you can't tell me anyone has done a better job in America unless you talk about some of the small teams that I don't know about. Um, and uh, do I have an Arizona bias? Yeah, but not really. I mean, imagine if next year, for example, Colorado fired Tad Boyle. Because Tad Boyle's team right now is a little bit about the same place Arizona was last year. Not quite as good because Arizona would have been in the tournament. But if Tad Boyle gets fired next month and a coach comes in and next thing you know, this uh, Colorado team's 31-3. and Heck, let's say they're 27-7. and that guy's getting a lot of votes for Coach of the Year. I don't, and not even if he didn't recruit uh, Jabari Walker and and you know, what's his face, the the guy who decommitted from U of A. The fact is, not only does Tommy Lloyd have an Arizona team at thirty-one and three, regardless of what they were last year, in his first year coaching, all three of his losses were true road losses. He has not lost to a bad team. Colorado is, I guess, you could say, an average team. 
Um, but he has done it again with a guy who didn't play last year, who barely played last year, who wasn't a pure point guard. He has transformed Christian Coloco into the defensive player of the year in the Pac-12, a first-team All-Pac-12 performer, and a legitimate NBA prospect. And if that's not Coach of the Year material, I don't know what is. You know, looking at the bracket, I, I thought to myself, there looks like the potential for a couple upsets to help Arizona out. Uh, most notably, I look at maybe uh, Illinois getting upset or, or yeah, maybe Houston getting upset. And I thought, you know, you you need upsets if you are going to get to the Final Four. It's happened before for Arizona, and it's really only happened once. In Arizona's four Final Fours, in 88, the only upset was number five Iowa over number four UNLV in the uh, second round to give Arizona, you know, Iowa in the Sweet 16. In 94... They went chalk. You know, they played all the favorites. 2001, the only upset was uh, number 10 Butler over Wake Forest, which I think at the time was seen as a slightly bigger upset uh, than we realize now because that was a Thad Mata Butler team. And and, and Wake Forest uh, was probably an overseeded ACC team. But at the time, it seemed like a big deal, and that was a fun game to watch. Only 97 did they really benefit from upsets. Now, it's happened other times for some of the Elite Eight runs. But for the final four runs, 97 faced number 12-seeded College of Charleston in the second round. Uh, They faced number 10 Providence in the Elite Eight. And if you also remember, the reason Providence got there was because, I believe it was Tennessee Chattanooga, upset Duke uh, early. In fact, had things played out another way, not only would Arizona have had to play the three number ones, which they did, but they could have had to face Kansas, Duke, Carolina, and Kentucky all in a row. You know, if somehow you could have fit UCLA or, or Indiana in that, that's about the way you can make that thing better. But they didn't. You know, Providence ends up in the Elite Eight. That game goes to overtime, uh, and it's all history from there. But Arizona really hasn't benefited on their Final Four runs from upsets. I found that to be pretty interesting because in general, Arizona's beaten who they needed to beat. And in 88, you know, they played number five, Iowa, in the Sweet 16. Then they played the two seed in uh, North Carolina. In 94, they had to play, I think it was uh, third seeded Louisville in the Sweet 16. Then number one seed Missouri, who, if you look at it, really, Missouri... While they got the one seed, Arizona actually had the easier path. I think Arizona was kind of the de facto number one in that region. And then even in, you know, uh, 01, you know, having to face, uh, what was it, third-seeded uh, Ole Miss in the uh, Sweet 16 and then facing Illinois, who was the top seed that year. So, again, most of the time, Arizona has had to face. So, if, if you're looking at that, that means that they're probably going to face the Houston-Illinois winner. And then they're probably going to face Villanova in the Elite Eight if they, if they get that far. But uh, upsets uh, would be nice to see a few. And again, this is, I think, a very balanced tournament. I don't think there are a lot of great teams, or a lot of very good teams. So I think we will see quite a few upsets, at least in the early rounds. You know, we talked about how one of the knocks on Tommy Lloyd when he was hired was, can he recruit? Can he recruit domestically? Uh, the other question was, can he win at the end of games? And so far, that looks like a resounding success. Uh, but Arizona gets their now second commitment for the 2023 class, although it's another guy who could 
conceivably reclassify. But you had Kylan Boswell recruit uh, commit a couple weeks ago. Now you have KJ Lewis, who is again a six four six five shooting guard out of El Paso. Uh, he grew up actually in the Vail area. Grew up a Wildcat fan, and he looks the part. You know, he is an athletic, well built wing player. Looks like a slightly maybe shorter version of uh, Dallin Terry in terms of build and length and athleticism. You know, he's certainly one of those guys who passes the eyeball test, just looks like an elite-level basketball player. Again, he has then the uh, power and athleticism to go with what he looks like he should have. He is a good scorer. Uh, He's a guy who can both attack the rim, a decent shooter. Being a bigger, stronger kid, he's able to play through contact to finish at the rim, uh, to get out on the break, which I think will be, you know, obviously a reason Arizona likes him. He's got a jump that shot that's good, but could be better. Uh, and he doesn't have a whole lot of moves right now, at least watching the video, in his uh, offensive game. So while he can get to the hoop, he can finish, he can get the lay in, he, he, you know, he doesn't have a pull-up yet. Uh, he doesn't have a whole lot of little moves other than just being athletic and an elite jumper. Good rebounder for his size. Again, he fits in this mold of defense to offense to getting in transition. He can do, again, a lot of the things that Tommy Lloyd wants him to do. And that's what is, I think, pretty exciting for, for an Arizona fan is that you're getting a guy who fits the system. Again, this isn't the case of Sean Miller getting elite players who don't fit his system. With Kylan Boswell, with... Dylan Anderson, frankly, with Adama Ball, and now with K.J. Lewis, you're getting guys who fit that system, that offense to defense, that fast pace, that you know get into hard-fought defensive battles and, and doesn't have an issue with it. Um, he is a guy who can pressure the ball. He's got pretty active hands. He can get the steals. He can jump passing lanes, always plays hard. So, again, he really fits in. I think, with what Arizona wants to do. And that's critical because, again, while Sean Miller oftentimes recruited very well, he didn't always recruit to his system. You know, for every Aaron Gordon and Rondé who really fit what Arizona wanted to do, frankly, even though a lot of people aren't happy with the final result, you know, you know Tarzuski. Tarzuski fit that pack line defense really well. But guys like Alonzo Trier, Raleigh Alkins, Kobe Simmons didn't always play into the strengths of what Sean Miller was as a coach. As I've often said, he's a great system coach who didn't always recruit to his system. And I think K.J. Lewis is a guy who certainly uh, fits that mold, maybe more so than anyone that they've brought in so far. Uh, very excited to see what his potential is. If you want his rankings, he is a four-star player. Uh, 24-7 Sports has him as the number 23 player overall and the number three shooting guard. The composite, not quite as favorable. They have him as a four-star as well, but they have him as the number 65 player in the nation. But oddly enough, the number 15 shooting guard in the nation. So eh, maybe split the difference. And uh, for those of you who care about such a thing, he does play for uh, Chapin High School in El Paso, Texas. But again, grew up in the Vail area. Um, And he was recruited by everyone. You know, Memphis, Texas Tech. Alabama. I think those are really the you know the big dogs that were recruiting him. At the end, uh, also had offers from Arkansas and Baylor and uh, Houston and Kansas and you know, down the list. So legit big time guy. Another nice feather in the recruiting cap. If you are 
Tommy Lloyd and the Wildcats. And again, maybe a guy who might be here next year, if not the 2023-2024 the season. And finally, I'm going to talk a little women's basketball. I'm not going to talk specifically about the Wildcats, but there was a little bit of controversy online. Let me just say this. We live in a society where it seems like we can only embrace one side of the story, where each side of the story seems to be mutually exclusive from the other. And during the week, or maybe over the weekend, Darren Roval, who's the business reporter, who seems to be hated more than he's loved, uh, reposted, I think it's a Buick ad, that basically plays the audio from a dramatic finish. I think it was of the National Championship game a few years ago. And, and basically said, you know, one of the most exciting games ever, but did you see it? And it's basically talking about how women's ba- college basketball, especially women's college basketball, but women's basketball in general, gets less fanfare, gets less hype, and gets less attention than men's basketball. And Rovell said something to the effect is because there's less parity and because it's a top-heavy sport that you get less of these dramatic finishes. You get less madness in your March Madness. And, of course, he got grilled. People saying, well, it's because it's not promoted like the men's game is promoted. It's not, you know, there's not the hype for it when it's the, you know, second show and half the games are on midweek and it doesn't have the front page attraction that men's college basketball. And my thought is, I think both are true. I think Rovell is right. If you look at women's college basketball, I thought I think I read a stat somewhere where no one seated higher than three has ever won a national championship. It's a top-heavy sport. There's a reason UConn is, you know, loses two games a decade. It seems like, you know, for a while there were I think I think there was like a five or six year span where only like six different teams went to the Final Four. Now I will say this: the game is getting better. The game is getting, there's more talent. There's more good teams now than ever. Uh, frankly, some of your your elite powerhouses are less dynastic than they used to be. I mean, Tennessee's a shell of what they used to be. I mean, I remember growing up as a kid, I think it was Old Dominion and Louisiana Tech. And sure, we see new empires built. You know, Stanford has been an empire forever, but South Carolina is a new power. Notre Dame, Baylor, um, now LSU with, with Mulkey there. Uh, Arizona, possibly. Uh, so we've seen the game. I would say the quality of play has gotten better. Much like softball maybe 10, 15 years ago that went from just a power game to a speed and power game. You know, women's college basketball is a better, more athletic sport than it has ever been. I mean, just look, you know, look at look at Ari McDonald last year, what she did with Arizona, being a very Stoudemire-esque type player that you didn't maybe see as much of in years past. But at the same time, it is still top-heavy. It is still less athletic than men's basketball. And I will say this. That is true of the NBA. And, for, oh, let me add this. Frankly, the numbers back that up. Women's college basketball, while the numbers are rising, and it's a fast-growing sport, the you know tournament numbers are dwarfed by the men's tournament. But if you look at men's college basketball compared to the NBA— and you take March Madness out of the equation, which is its own special event, NBA ratings are better, in general, than most college basketball ratings. Um, Because, although I like college basketball better, I don't think we can argue that NBA has the best, most skilled players. 
So more people, I think, gravitate towards that, just like I think more people gravitate towards men's college basketball than women's college basketball. Doesn't mean both aren't great. Doesn't mean both tournaments aren't great. But as of now, the men's product, to me, is a better product. The women's product is getting better. Um, and does it so? Does it deserve more hype? Yes. Does it deserve more exposure? Yes. Frankly, does the NCAA need to spend a little more money on it than they did last year when they, you know, they put on that sham of a of an event in San Antonio? Yes. But at the same time, more people are going to watch men's college basketball because, frankly, right now between athleticism and parity, it's just a better product. Doesn't mean the women's game doesn't deserve more hype, but it also means there's a reason more eyeballs other than advertising, marketing, promotion are on the men's game. But our eyes will be on the U of A men on Friday, the U of A women on Saturday, and probably a lot of basketball before, after, and in between. In fact, Arizona could find out who they're going to play very soon here, and we'll do a breakdown, whether it's Bryant or Wagner, plus a look at their region, plus a deeper dive into UNLV for the women. But until then, enjoy your basketball in this most wonderful time of the year. And while you're doing it, make sure you bear down.